tonight we're talking about the subject of love. We're, uh, we're doing this series we're calling We Are Family. And it's this wonderful thing called the family of God. And we're talking about how we do life together, what some of the privileges of being part of the family of God are. And tonight we're dealing with this subject of love. Okay, which is a broad subject, but I'm calling this talk tonight The Road of Love. And we're going to go straight into our first scripture, which simply says this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. It's the Apostle Paul instructing a church in Corinth. He says, Follow the way of love. And that follows a whole chapter written about love. And it's a famous chapter. It's written, uh, read at many weddings that you go to, Christian weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love is sincere, love uh, doesn't envy, all, all of those things. It's a whole chapter about love. We're not going to read that one tonight. But the verse before that chapter says, I will now show you the most excellent way, the most excellent road, the superior road. And Paul's talking about this, this hugely diverse church with lots of different people in it. And I don't know if you ever look at a church sometimes and you look at all the different people and you think, how on earth does this whole thing hold together with all these different personalities and, and people from different backgrounds? And Paul's answer to that question is this, that you follow the way of love. And he says, I'm going to show you the superior way. I'm going to show you the superior road, the high road. I don't know if you know the song. Have you ever walked around the bonnie banks of Loch Lomond? And said, I'll take the high road and you take the low. I'll be in Scotland before you. And, and the, I guess the premise of that song is this, that doesn't matter which road you take, high road or low road, we'll all meet up in the end. Jesus, however, would tell us this, that in terms of becoming like Jesus, Christian maturity, there's only one road that we can take. And it's the road called love. If, uh, if you were to ask me for directions today and say, Dan, how do you get to Glasgow? I'd say you take the M8 all the way to Glasgow. And if you said, hey, how do I get to Inverness? I'd say A9 for hundreds of miles north. And you'll eventually get there if you keep going. If you said, how do I get to see the Wizard of Oz? I'd say, well, you follow the yellow brick road. And uh, you can put on some fashionable red footwear to dance your way there if you like. Now, if you want this thing called being like Jesus, if you want to become more like him, the only advice I can give you tonight is this. You need to follow this road called love. And Jesus said, broad is the road to destruction, narrow is the road to eternal life. And the thing about this road called love, is this. It's an uphill road. It's uphill all the way. I took up running a couple of years ago, and uh, yesterday I, was, uh, I, I did a 10K race with a few others in church here. That was really great. Um, I didn't do so well, actually. Thanks for asking. I had a little competition going with uh, Nathaniel in the office, and, 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 and I thought I could beat him. He's like 20 years younger than me. And I, I thought, no, I, I, and, and he just totally, he whipped me. Like, he was, he was like pretty much 10 minutes ahead of me by the end of the race. But here was the thing. You have a lot of time to think on a run. And this is what I, one of the things I was thinking about was any time I was running downhill, I felt like I was a good runner. But any time I went uphill, I thought, my heart is bursting within me. My legs are sore. My mind is yelling at me, stop it, you fool. You're an old man. But when I ran downhill, it, everything seemed fine. 
Now, here's the thing about love and anything worthwhile in your life. It's uphill all of the way. And here's the thing. Some of you here are single. Some of you are married. If you get married, your wedding day is a high day. And then, in the right sense of the word, it's downhill from there. <laughs> There's a sense in which, hey, this is wonderful. Our whole life is together, and we're taking the journey downhill. We're running downhill. It feels easy, good. Hey, we're spending all of our time together. We're going to spend the whole of our life together. It's wonderful. And then you, you hit the bottom of the hill, and you have to start climbing. And you start to say to each other, wow, we're going to spend the rest of our whole life together. Wow, that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be some uphill. But here's the wonderful thing about when you go uphill is you, you ascend to heights that you didn't reach before. And God takes you to new places. That's true of any relationship, by the way. It could be true of a new small group that you're part of. It takes time. It takes uphillness to, to, uphillness to get to, to relational levels with people. There's a commitment. There's a hard work about it. Now, today I want to help you choose the road of love and to keep you on that road. And we're going to read a few verses from 1 John chapter 4, which is just a great um, summary of, of, of God's love and a great description of it. So read with me and it will appear on the screen behind me. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who, has loved, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know Sorry, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So as we think about these verses, I want us to help us think about this road of love. And, and you know a road has a left and a right and a middle. Any road that you've been on has that same kind of feel, doesn't it? And if you go on a road like this with those cat's eyes, you you get red ones on the left and orange ones on the right and white ones down the middle. And as we talk about this subject of love, it's helpful for us to know that there's there's parameters to it. There's limits to it. There's, There's something for our feet to travel on as we run along this race and on this road. 
And this first edge of the road, if you like, is the love of God and the God of love. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Here's a truth for us to get hold of. There's going to be two truths and one experience. Truth number one is this, that God is love and all love comes from God. All true love comes from God. He's the father of love. He's the source of love. He is love. Now, when people ask the question in our culture, they say, well, what is love? People start by asking the question and say, well, the answer to that question is found in who am I? And if I find out who am I, then perhaps I'll find out how I'm meant to love. The Bible turns on and it says, no, it's not about who you are. It's about who God is. And if you and I want to learn about love, we need to look at the source of love. The Bible says that God loves all that he has made. That's to say that his love is evidenced in all of creation. If God is love, then our experience and understanding of love can be likened to the warmth of the sun we enjoy compared with the intensity of the sun that produces it. Now, if God made everything, that means he also made love. He's not only love, but he created love. He creates all of the love that we understand and know. And it might interest you to know there's four words for love in the New Testament that commonly got used in Greek times. And one of those words in particular gets used a lot more than all of the others. And we'll come on to that one. But here's some three others just for you to, to know and enjoy. These are the kind of loves that God created for us to enjoy. Here's the first one. The, the Greek word is storge. Say storge. That's a good word. Isn't it? I just like saying that word. And it, it means affection. Affection. Do you, do you know what it feels like when you just cuddle somebody or hold a baby or you, you see a, a little kitten sort of jumping up and down on a tree or something like that? And it just brings a sense of pleasure to your heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think you just think, oh. That, that affection when... You smile at somebody and they smile at back and it it produces a warmth inside you. That's called affection. Do you know God made that? God made us as human beings so that we would have that feeling within us. Affection, that life isn't just dry. He also made this love called philia in the Greek. And uh, that, that means brotherly or brotherly love or sisterly love. It's the love between family members. It's that sense that blood is thicker than water. That you can just ring up your brother or sister and you might not have spoken to them for years, but you can say, hey, I'm coming to stay next week and not give you an option about it. It's that sense that, well, we've got shared history, shared DNA, shared parenting. Therefore, we've got a lot in common, so nothing else really matters. We can rely on each other when we need. Do you know... Even if your family experience has been weak and troubled, God brings you to this thing called the family of God, which is meant to be even more of a family than the families we're from. He brings us brotherly, sisterly love. He brings us brothers and sisters to interact with. And in fact, in Hebrews 2, Jesus is described as being like our eldest brother. We're part of his family. Here's the third uh, wonderful 
kind of love that God creates for the human race. The, the Greek word is eros. It means romantic, sexual love. It's a very powerful, strong tool for intimacy and union that God says in the word of God that is to be celebrated between a man and a woman together in lifelong union of marriage. And that's the exclusive place where that love gets celebrated and enjoyed. And it's designed to draw a married couple together and to strengthen the union of their lives and their hearts. It's a gift from God. God's not a prude. In fact, the whole book of the Bible, Song of Songs, written about this kind of love. And God made it. He made it for procreation. He made it for enjoyment. But then there's this other word. And this word is agape. And this word, best understood, means unconditional love. And pretty much all the time when the New Testament Christians started talking about God's love and love for one another, they started using this word to describe it. And whether they were talking about God's love in the sense of God so loved the world he gave his only son, they'd use this word. He unconditionally loved it. Meaning, one-way love. It's the kind of love that gives even though it doesn't get anything back. It's the kind of love that is one-way love. It's the kind of love that says, I'm going to love you even if you respond to my advances or not. It says uh, of Jesus that, that uh, he, he came into the world, but his own did not receive him. His love was unconditional love. Jesus went to the cross, not, not because uh, we had responded and said that we wanted him to. He did it because we needed him to even though we didn't see that need for ourselves. And what we see is that the standard of God's love is so much higher than any other love that we could understand. And that's the love of the road of love that we're to understand. That's this left-hand side. Here's the right-hand truth that we're to be aware of. So if we get a wrong image of God, we career off that left-hand side of the road. If we get a, a wrong image of Jesus and the work of Jesus, we go off the other side of the road. So this second truth is this. It's the work of Jesus. This is the verse we read. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is practical. This is how God showed his love. If all we had was the truth about God is love, then the philosophers and ontologists would just argue about that for centuries. But the Bible goes one step further and it says, no, God doesn't. God isn't just love, but he shows love. He shows love. Jesus practically demonstrates what love looks like by dying on a cross for us. And the primary sins of the human heart are sins of love or lack of love. It's not loving God as he deserves to be loved and it's not loving our neighbor as ourself. And if this verse is understood correctly, it says that God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The thing that keeps you and I on the road of love in the hope that we can love people is this, that when we fail to meet that mark, which we do every day, Jesus has atoned for all of our sins. He's paid the price. Here's the middle. So we've got a left and a right. Here's the third thing. 
It's the experience of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this in the worship already, but verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us, he has given us of his spirit. It's not just truth. It's the experience of God that keeps us in the race. It's the experience of the Holy Spirit and the love of God that enables us to love other people. This is the center ground of the Christian life. It's truth here, truth here, and experience of God here. It's the love of the Father, it's the love of Jesus, and it's the love of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And I don't know how this sounds to you. God living in us. This is surely the most intimate relationship you could ever have with somebody. For them to live inside you. I mean, that trumps kind of holding hands or giving somebody a hug, doesn't it? It's God in you and never leaving you. And he puts this two ways around. And we often understand this one way around, that if we invite God into our life, if we invite Jesus in, then he comes in by his spirit and, uh, and he makes us more loving people. And that's true. In fact, uh, I think uh, uh, we had that read earlier on about Christ coming into our life, Paul praying that, that Christ would live in our hearts through faith. But Paul says it the other way around. He says, you know, when you love people, it makes more space for God in your life. And when you love people, it's almost like God the Holy Spirit can't resist but say, well, you're going to need some backup here. And so as we love people, he comes into our life by his Holy Spirit. So here's the question I want to look at in these remaining minutes together. Is, is how do we run along this road called love? And the answer is we deal with the person in front of us. Look at verse 20 again. It says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So the good news is it's to, to, to run this race of love on the road of love, it's as simple as this. It's just loving your brother and sister. Easy peasy. Job done. Happy. Off we go. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Here's the trouble, he says, some people you're calling brother and sister, you're hating them. You're hating them. You think, surely Christians would never act in such a way. What you find is that Christians struggle with relationships just like anybody else in the world. But God holds us to account and he gives us the power to turn troubled relationships into strong friendships. Loving your brother and sister isn't easy. It's uphill all the way. Now, as I said, I've been doing some running this weekend, so all my mind is filled with running imagery at the moment. So, uh, so somebody said to me, why did you take up running? And uh, in all honesty, I, my kids were beginning to get too old to be used as sermon illustrations, and I needed some fresh material. <laughs> so I took up running, and, and hey, it's, it's all just coming to life around me. <laughs> Anytime I run anywhere, it's like, whoa, this tells me about the Bible. It's the nature of teaching. It's amazing. Anyway... So here's the first thing. The Edinburgh 10K yesterday, right? First thing, um, you can put up the next slide now. The, the first part of running this race on the road of love is this. We must run in community together. It's not an individual pursuit. And 
one of the great things about being in a race is this, that everybody's running in the same direction. It would be chaos if everybody was following a different route and running back and forwards. The, the great news is that everybody was broadly heading to the same finish line. And that's kind of what church is. We're in community together, and we're saying, you know what, we all want to be like Jesus. We all want to make it into eternity. We all want to see him face to face. We all love him, and we generally all want to love one another. The best way we can do that is to have other runners alongside us, because that encourages us to keep running the right way. We also need people cheering us on, and around the course, you'd see different people shouting, keep going, keep going. When it was getting tough, people would shout out, keep running. Sometimes we need that encouragement from people. As we're slowing down, as we're struggling, people say, just keep going. Keep going. God doesn't want us to be isolated or withdrawn or live in a bubble where everybody is the same as us. We're to be in this community with brothers and sisters. Let me ask you this question tonight. Is church an organization that you tip up to or is it a family that you belong to? God wants us to be part of his family, his community. Here's the second way we run. We run with humility. Here's an exciting thing I, I learned as, we, as, I, as I took up running. That when you enter a race, you have to put an estimated time for your race that, that you'll complete it in on your application form. And what I didn't know is they, they color code you based on your own estimate of yourself. And then they put you in a starting pen just so the fast people are all at the front and the slow people are at the back and it stops everybody tripping over each other. Now, it's kind of irresistible that when you get given a certain colour and you're running the race, you kind of, as you're passing people, you just casually glance over at their colour. And it's amazing how many people totally overestimated their ability <laughs> when they applied to enter the race. And you just, I mean, not so much this year, actually, but I was cruising with you and thinking, wow, you really thought you were going to be a whole 10 minutes faster <laughs> than you really were. Now, the opposite to that approach is humility. And to get along in the family of God is this, we need to not think too highly of ourselves. In fact, it says in Romans 12, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to one, every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. To hear what uh, John said as, as we read these verses a moment ago, he said, whoever claims to love his brother and sister, there's a falseness about that. If you're claiming one thing and doing another thing, then you're not seeing things correctly. You know, every one of us has blind spots. That's things in our life that we've never spotted about ourselves where we fail to meet the mark. And over a lifetime, perhaps people will gently begin to point those things out to you. But theologians used to separate sin into these two categories. They used to say, you know, there's sins of commission and sins of omission. There's sins of commission. There's the things that we do deliberately to hurt other people and against God. That's deliberate, but that's the ones we're usually aware of. We feel guilty, we feel ashamed, those sorts of things. But there's this other category of sins, which is sins of omission. They're, they're the things that we should have done that we didn't know we should have done. 
And there's a whole category that we, we, don't, we can't even define it because we don't know what they are. And the truth is, is those sins are just as harmful. Now, if we're self-aware enough to know that we don't know everything about us, that should enable us to judge other people very kindly because we realize other people are probably being very kind to us in their assessment of us. Here's the third way we run this race. We run with vulnerability. Here's the verse we read earlier. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Here's what happens when you get hold of true love. Fear begins to subside. When people love us with this kind of love, we don't mind telling them what's really going on for us. When we love people with unconditional love, they let us into their lives and they say, well, this is how it is for me. I don't live up to that standard. And we can drop down the barriers ourselves. Vulnerability is showing more of ourselves. Uh, so just can you grab that T-shirt down there? Um, so th- this was uh, I got given this um, vest top last week to, to run for Bethany Christian Trust I put it on yesterday morning and, and uh, uh, my, my wife Julie she said no you can't run in that and uh, I kind of looked and said oh man do you, do you not care about the homeless she said no no she said, I, I don't think you should be exposing that much of your body to the general public <laughs> and uh, I think she was probably right about that um, so I, I changed t-shirt to something with some sleeves and But here's the thing, when we get vulnerable, we begin to show who we really are to people. I was in a a church leaders group a a few months ago, and uh, it it was a really great gathering with many really gifted leaders in the room leading remarkable churches, seeing loads of people uh, saved and all sorts of things. And normally there's a lot of triumphalism in a meeting like that, where people go around and they just share all the great stories that are happening in their church. But this one was different. In the Somebody said, well, why don't we just share how things really are for us at the moment, personally? And I thought, oh, no. (laughs) But we went around the room. There's 20 people in the room. And a significant church leader there who I respect and has remarkable presence and ministry and gifting, and he said, you know, I've, I've been depressed for years. He said, I've been on depression medication. I've battled with mental health pretty much all of my ministry life. And everyone in the room went, wow. And there was a bit of silence. And then somebody else piped up. They said, well, actually, me too. That's my story. And then somebody else said, well, that's the same for me. I thought, wow. I would have never guessed that about these people. And it went around the room. And I thought, well, I'd better say something slightly meaningful about myself, otherwise, you know, struggling to read my Bible, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so, so I said, it came to me and I said, well, it, it, I'd recently taken on leadership of the eldership team, it was stretching me all sorts of directions that I'd not been stretched in before, and I was finding it challenging. And I said, you know, if you ask my wife, Julie, she'd say, you know what, you're not being great at home at the moment, you're not being a good husband, and you're being really crabby with the kids. Which 
was heartbreaking but true for me to hear those words from Julie, but she was absolutely right. And I shared that with this room full of guys, and here was the wonderful thing that happened. Nobody in the room pounced on me and said, you're an idiot. Nobody put their hand around me and said, that's fine, that's how it is. But they did gather around me and pray for me and say, well, it sounds like that needs to change. Let's pray for you, let's pray for God to help you. They loved me. It was an atmosphere of trust. When there's an atmosphere of trust, there can be vulnerability. Who are the people that you're vulnerable with in your life? Is that your small group? Is that a friendship in the church? It's important that we have those relationships. Here's the final thing. We have to run showing amnesty. The Bible says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the nature of any running race is this, that people get in your way sometimes. People annoy you. Sometimes they veer in front of you. Sometimes people take that spot that you wanted on the road in front of you. And here's the Christian life. It's just full of everyday things where it just requires acts of forgiveness and acts of love and acts of amnesty. We say, you know what? I'm not going to even bother processing this as a hurt because... God has loved me and forgiven me so much. You do well in the Christian life to let people off the hook as often as you can. And one of the hardest things to judge in the Christian life is motive. You know, I mean, it was great to hear Jenny talk about politics earlier. Uh, Have you ever noticed any time there's any political commentary, everybody assumes and everybody is guessing everybody's motive all of the time for any decision, any action, any speech they make, say, well, what really is going on is this, and what is what they really mean? Nobody seems to trust each other at face value these days. In the Christian community, we're called to believe the best about people. And when uh, people are trying to follow Jesus, we say, well, I'll go with the narrative that They probably didn't mean to act in such a way as to cause me hurt. They were probably having a different focus and a different thought. Motive is the hardest thing to perceive and the most dangerous thing to guess. We're never to second-guess motives. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Each, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. What he's saying is this, that we're never really going to fully understand the motives of people's hearts. And, and to be honest, if you're as complicated as I am, you don't even understand your own motives some of the time. But one day, that will be revealed. In the meantime, we're not to second guess, well, what did they mean by that? And what you find in a Christian community of people who are different to you is that you'll find people who are incredibly focused And at times, they can look unfriendly because you'll say, hey, how about we hang out? And they'll be like, well, I'm kind of busy right now. I'm going over here. And in a Christian community, you'll find people who contend towards anxiety. And your experience might be, well, they seem awfully fixed about everything because that's the way of managing anxiety. You can find spontaneous people who are just great relationally and, 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 and kind of turning up and being the life and soul of the party, but ask them to turn up on time to something. And it's like, where are they? Half an hour again, late for small group. And you're, if you're not careful, you find yourself judging and you're saying, well, they're, they're just not valuing me or my time. 
Actually, well, it's just they've got another set of values and time is a lesser value for them. <laughs> Think the best at every opportunity. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. One time, Peter went to Jesus, and I think he thought he was saying something pretty, uh, pretty praiseworthy to Jesus. He said, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And I get the impression that he'd just forgiven somebody seven times, and that's why he'd come up with that number. Because he thought, yes, I've forgiven somebody seven times. Jesus is going to be pleased with me. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. When somebody sins against you, you forgive them 70 times, seven times. Peter was like, what? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's a, 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 we go and watch the football at, at Hearts Stadium. And there's a guy who sits a couple of rows behind us, and he gets pretty irked uh, at watching uh, the games. And particularly when he sees Hearts playing, and he sees the quality of Scottish refereeing not being as fair as it should be when dealing with Hearts players. And sometimes he'll see a, a member of the opposition team persistently fouling a Hearts player, and, and the referee will do nothing about it in his opinion. And, and you, can, you can physically feel his presence in the row behind, and, and he's just getting less and less comfortable, and his blood is beginning to boil. And round about the 20th or 25th minute, after that 7th, yellow card should have been moments. He gets up and he shouts at the top of his voice. He says, how many times, referee? How many times? <laughs> well, Peter says to Jesus, how many times, Jesus? How many times should I let my brother or my sister off the hook when they annoy me and upset me and hurt me? Seven? Jesus says, 490. <laughs> there you go. Because that's how God, gracious God is with you and more. So here's the question. Are you going to take the high road this week, this year? Are you going to take the high road called love? The high road that shows amnesty to people who don't deserve it. That shows vulnerability. That shows humility. And that walks in community. Or are you going to take that low road of unforgiveness? and guardedness, and superiority, and isolation. It's an uphill road, but it's a road that the Holy Spirit helps us to climb, and he's with us all the way. And here's the final verse for us to look at, John 13, verse 35. Here's the result. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Isn't that amazing? How's the world going to know that you're my disciples? Because I'm going to tell them that I'm a Christian. Jesus, no. The main thing is this, that you have relationships of love where you show this kind of love to brothers and sisters in your life in church community.